Welcome to Sardis, the once great and beautiful city here in Western Turkey. Sardis was the capital city of the ancient kingdom of Lydia, strategically located on the King's Road, going all the way to Persia. It was once famous for affluence and creative culture. However, today there is very little remaining except the villages in the surrounding areas. Of the seven churches of Revelation, Sardis, Laodicea, and Ephesus are the only ones whose ruins are not contained within the limits of a major modern city. During the time of the New Testament, Sardis was a large city with upwards of 100,000 people. And the reason for this large population was, at least in part, due to the fact that there was essentially a gold rush. It was rumored that gold was found in the river here, and so the same dynamic that occurred in California happened here. A large group of people moved to Sardis to strike it rich, which some of them inevitably did. And so this spectacular city, situated in a beautiful environment, became renowned for its fabulous wealth. Sardis is believed to be actually the first city in all of human history where gold and silver coins were minted and used as currency. In fact, the coinage system and the philosophy that was invented 700 years before Jesus was still in use in the 1970s. When the area was under Roman control, one of the coins that was in use and in circulation was known to have a picture of the Roman Emperor Domitian holding in his hand seven stars, representing the reality that he was the one in charge of the empire and of this city. And it's this theme of power and control and authority that Jesus identifies and addresses in his letter to these believers. But don't be surprised when someone other than the Emperor Domitian is proclaimed to be the one in charge, not just of this city, but of the whole world. Sardis was originally an acropolis, set atop a hill with sheer cliffs up to 1,500 feet high around it. And these cliffs are at nearly 90 degree angles and incredibly difficult to climb. The only normal way of access was along a narrow piece of land to the south. This was to fortify to pretend attack. The city was considered impenetrable. So not only was this a wealthy city, but it was a protected city. They were safe and comfortable, or so they thought. Sardis had everything a city could want. A choice location, climate, wealth, and a culture. Because of this, the people of Sardis became overly confident in their security. But interestingly enough, twice in the city's history, it has been caught completely off guard. In 549 BC, Cyrus the Great, king of Persia, captured the city using skilled soldiers who could climb, who scaled the walls and attacked Sardis in the middle of the night, and it was demolished. Years later, in 218 BC, the city was once again caught off guard and captured by soldiers employed by the Greek king Antiochus the Great. The great struggle of the people of Sardis was not in having ideal fortifications. It was being alert to the dangers that always exist, even when you think you're unable to be defeated. It was this theme that Jesus chose to highlight in his letter to the church, a message that spoke to the exact reality of their situation and addressed their cultural blind spots. The city itself was thought to be safe. They thought no one could touch them. It seems that Christians had adopted that same comfort level, and this message was a true wake-up call to those believers. But that message wasn't just for them. It extends directly to us as well. It's a call for us to live on the offensive with a constant awareness towards God's calling on our lives, rather than casually slipping into a lazy belief that we are spiritually undefeatable. We can't be that slumbering church.
Don't you just hate that sound? The sound of your alarm clock waking you up. Man, no one likes to hear that sound because it shocks you, especially during this time of year where it's cold outside and it's warm under the covers. And you just want to stay in bed. And so you do what naturally everybody does. You reach to your nightstand, you reach to that alarm clock, and you push snooze. Okay, let's just be honest as the church. How many of you would say you're a snoozer? Go ahead, at all of our locations, raise your hand. Be proud of it. It's okay. Yeah, we have some snoozers. And can I just say, I don't like you. I don't like you. Because here's the deal. It's like there's only so many days in my life, especially as a parent, where I get to sleep in. And I long for those days. It's usually a Friday on my day off where I communicate with my wife. Hey, babe, I'm tired. Would you get up with the kids and, and would you watch them so I can sleep in? And so I dream of those days. I long for those days. But sometimes my wife forgets that she has appointments early in the morning. And so I think I'm going to get to sleep in. And then her alarm goes off at 6 a.m. And I'm like, okay, she's going to get up and she's going to get ready. But she pushes that snooze button, and five minutes later, here it is. And then five minutes later, it continues, and then five minutes later, it continues, and I'm just like, would you just wake up? In fact, I have an alarm clock that goes off every single morning, pretty much around the same time. My alarm clock is it has blonde hair and blue eyes, and every single morning around 6 a.m., she sneaks down to the side of my bed, and she, with those eyes glowing, looks, and she says, Daddy, can I watch cartoons? Daddy, can I play with your phone? And I'm like, baby, why are you up? It's still dark outside, and she says, it's time to wake up, Daddy. And that's what alarm clocks are designed for. They're designed to move us, to get us out of bed, to wake us up. And what's interesting in this series seven, we're looking at the fifth church, the church in Sardis, and he says those words, wake up to a church that fell asleep. If you have your Bibles, Revelation chapter three, Revelation chapter three, and as you're making your way there, I want to welcome you to Northridge Church. Thanks for being here this morning. Whether you're joining us from one of our campuses or you're with us online or you're a guest, thanks for just taking a portion of your weekend and spending it with us. We're honored to have you here this morning. And if you haven't been here or you've been here on and off, we've been in this series called Seven where we're looking in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 at the seven letters Jesus writes through a man named John to seven churches and how Although they're written thousands of years ago, they're still relevant to us as a church and to us as individuals, Christians walking with God. And we're looking at today the church in Sardis, a church we're calling the slumbering church. And Jesus actually speaks to this church in Revelation chapter 3. We pick it up in verse 1. He says this, he says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now again, Jesus identifies himself. He introduces himself like he has done in the last four letters. And he uses two symbols. He says, one, the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now some of us, we, we throw up a red flag and we say seven spirits of God. I thought there was only one spirit of God. And what he's saying is he's talking about the fullness of the Spirit of God. And actually, we find this out. We see the seven spirits of God found in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. We see them. 
It says the spirit of the Lord, one, will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom, two, and and understanding, three. The spirit of counsel, four, and of might, five. The spirit of knowledge, six, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord is seven. And here you see the fullness of those seven spirits. And Jesus introduces himself as I'm the fullness. I encompass all the spirit of God. But he also says the seven stars. And this was a subtle reference to Sardis because there was a coin. You saw it much in the video with Domitian on there who held seven stars. And again, Jesus reminds the church in Sardis, hey, I'm the true authority. You see this as a constant theme in, throughout these letters. As Jesus reminds the church who the authority is in a culture that was going in the opposite direction. But he continues in verse 1. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive but you are dead. Now, you'll notice something interesting about the letter to Sardis is they're one of the only churches to receive, to receive, no, correct, to, to receive no encouragement. Now, that's not really that exciting for a church. Is they're one of the only churches that Jesus doesn't say anything positive to them. He just really doesn't beat, beat around the bush. He gets straight to it, and he says, hey, I know your deeds. I know you have this reputation of being alive, but you're dead. And these seem like harsh words. But what Jesus was saying to this church was, hey, I know you have a reputation of being alive. You see, Sardis was a church that maybe at one point was alive spiritually. They were reaching people for Jesus, but over the course of time, they started to fall into this sleepy pattern where they became spiritually dead or spiritually dying. They had a reputation. Maybe they had a fantastic building or they had fantastic programs. But once you got behind the facade and you got into the heart of this church, it was dying spiritually. And I wonder how many of us fall into that trap in our culture today. Where, you know, we think we're alive. We think we're doing good things for the gospel. But if you get past our fake facade where we pretend to be the best Christian, where we put on this this show and we know all the right answers and we act like the best Christian and we think we're doing good, but God looks at us and he looks at our heart and he says, no, actually you're spiritually dying. And what Jesus was saying to this church is our reputation doesn't always reflect our reality. Our reputation The reputation of Sardis was, hey, they looked alive. They were a fantastic church. But once you got behind the walls and you looked at the innards of this church, it was dying spiritually. And sometimes our reputation, maybe once we were known for being on fire for Jesus, being a passionate Christian, but over the course of of life, we we started this slow fade where we went from being alive to now we're slowly dying. Our reputation doesn't reflect our reality. Let me put it to you like this. You see, a lot of Christmases, my family and I, we have this tradition where we go out to a fancy meal as a family. And it's great because my dad pays. Praise the Lord, right? And so my dad, he, he pays for all our family. And we bounce around from nice restaurant to nice restaurant. And we always look for the next best restaurant. We want to find a restaurant with fantastic food. And over the course of this tradition... Over and over again, we've been recommended this restaurant in Elmira, New York. 
Now, I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania. There's no good restaurants where I live, so we have to travel pretty far. And so my uncle, who actually flies around the country eating at amazing restaurants, he recommended this restaurant. He said, the food is fantastic. And over the course of time, people kept saying, you got to check out this restaurant. It's amazing. And so we put it off for a couple years. But finally, as a family, we said, okay, we've, we've heard enough. We've got to go there, and we've got to check this out. And we were excited, man. Everybody said the food was fantastic. And we, we were just so jazzed to go to this restaurant. So we get in the car and we, we travel to this restaurant. We pull in the parking lot and it's beautiful. I mean, it looks the part. It looks absolutely fantastic until we walked into the doors. And everything started to slowly fade. We thought there would be nice white tablecloths with fancy chairs. But as we walked in, we realized that there were metal chairs with plastic tablecloths. Now, it wasn't that big of a deal because yeah, who cares what it looks like if the food is amazing? I mean, I, I just want good food. And so we stepped in and we ordered, and we ordered nice food, shrimp scampi and prime rib and filet mignon. And we thought, man, this is going to be fantastic. Our mouths are watering. And then the food came. And what we thought would be soft, beautiful, cooked steak was rubbery and charred. It was disgusting. And we thought, what happened to this restaurant? Everybody recommended it years ago. And what happened is, over the course of time, this restaurant at one point was fantastic. It was good, but over the course of a couple years, their reputation no longer reflected their reality. And that was the church in Sardis. At one point, they were thriving and growing. They had fantastic buildings. But over the course of time, they fell into this sleepy pattern where they became, they were dying spiritually. And do you realize that this happens all over our world with churches and individuals, that we can easily fall into this trap? In fact, do you, do you recognize that 3,500 churches in America each year die? They close their doors. They no longer meet. 3,500 churches a year no longer have services. They close their doors and they're finished. Do you realize that 65% of all the churches in America are plateaued or are declining? They might have fantastic facilities and fa fantastic buildings and programs, but somewhere along the way, something changed on the innards it's caused them this slow fade where they're now dying. And can I just say I'm so honored and, and, and glad to be a part of a church that God is using. That we are at North, Northridge Church are growing. We just launched a fourth campus and God is using us to grow this ministry. And I just want you to know this. This has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with our staff or our programs or our lights or our music. It has everything to do with who God is and how he's using our church. The glory doesn't belong anywhere here. It belongs all the way up there. Because that's all about who Jesus is and what he's doing right here in Rochester. But I asked myself this question, like, okay, what, how, how does this church in Sardis begin this slow fade towards a, a dying ministry? How do churches die? How do we as spiritual leaders, how do we as Christians fall into this sleepy pattern? I want to give you five things that I think we need to measure today. I think the first one is we lack love. We begin that slow fade where we become a dying Christian when we lack love. 
When we forget that God's called us out of our overflow of loving him. And it causes us to love others. We lose the love for the lost and people who are far from God. We lose love, that calling that God has placed on our lives to love the people around us, our neighbors and the people in our kids' schools and in our offices. We lose love. In fact, we just started an initiative called Beyond where God has called us to love through relationships. And we begin this slowly dying pattern when we lose love. Secondly, when we lose our passion for prayer. When we forget how powerful prayer is in our own walk with God and as a church, when we just forget and we stop praying and communicating to God, we begin this slow fade where we become not an alive church but a dying church. Man, you know one thing I love about Northridge Church is every single weekend before our services, we have people who pray for all four of our campuses. We have people who pray for our technology, who pray for our communicators, people who pray for what's going to take place in our services, and people who pray for the chairs that you're sitting in. Did you know that? That we have people who are committed, who show up early to pray for our services before they ever happen. And we begin this slow fade if we lose that passion for prayer. Third, when we lose our ear for truth. When we, we become so prideful and so proud that we become no longer teachable. Where we don't allow people to speak truth into our lives. Do you realize that this is why we do community groups? Because we want to surround you with people who have permission to speak life into your marriage. Speak life into your walk with God. And when we get to a place in life where we think we're so spiritually mature that we don't allow anybody to speak truth into our lives, we start that fate. We go from being alive to slowly starting to die. And here's the reality is we got to be a church and individuals who allow people to speak truth into our lives where we recognize the world's ways aren't better, but we stand on the authority and the truth of God's word. Fourth, we tolerate sin. We begin that slow pattern of dying when we tolerate sin. I talked about, a lot about this last week. When we allow sin in our lives to linger where we flirt with sin and indulge in the ways of the evil one, it leads us fast down this pattern where we start dying spiritually. Fifth, we stop taking risks for the gospel. Where we become at a place where we just find ourselves in this comfy, cozy Christianity where we stop being bold and courageous, living out pie squared, where we pray and invest and invite people to their next steps with God, where we just sit casually in the chair, in our, in our seat every single Sunday and just take it all in and say, oh, this feels good. See, we start that pattern when we stop taking risks for the gospel. You know, there's some quotes that I really believe in for my own walk with God, some areas that remind me to take risks. One of the quotes I want to share with you, this is something that I want to live by, is I want to attempt something so big, it's bound to fail unless God intervenes. I mean, I want to live this way as a Christian, is I want to be passionate and I want to dream big enough that, that my dreams are so big that I realize that if I take this step of faith, it will fail unless God steps in. Do we live that way? Another quote you might hear around our, our church and you'll hear it in membership is we will do anything but sin to reach people for Jesus. 
And sometimes that offends people, and sometimes that makes people mad. But we're a church. Northridge Church is a church that we will do anything but sin. We'll have flashy lights, and we'll have loud music, and we'll do things that, that is relevant to our culture to show people how amazing God is. We realize that they're just tools, but they're tools that point people back to Jesus. You see, we start this dying pattern when we lose our love for others, when we forget about prayer, when we stop taking risks for the gospel, where we tolerate sin and we lose our ear for truth. And that's what happened to the church in Sardis. They found themselves in this sleepy knoll where Jesus says, hey, you look alive, but you're dying. And this is what he says to him, verse 2. He says, wake up. Wake up like that alarm clock. Get up and change something. And maybe this is just a call to me and a call to us. Maybe we find ourselves in this pattern where we're dying spiritually, where we think we're doing good things, but inside, if you get past the facade, we're dying spiritually. And maybe this is a call for us to wake up. Maybe this is Jesus speaking to me and speaking to you to say, hey, something's got to change because you're going downward. Jesus says, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what time I will come. So Jesus tells this church, he says, hey, you got to wake up. You got to see what's happening in your own walk with me. You got to see as a church where you're headed. And he says, hey, I want you to remember. I want you to remember the gospel. You see, I think there's something really special about when we as, as individuals who are walking with God, where we remember what Christ did. Because when we remember the gospel, because our faith starts at the gospel, at the cross. And when we remember what Jesus did for us, it, it ignites this fire. It makes us spiritually awake. It, it recognizes us that, hey, we're, we're subject to some of these patterns and we got to stay awake. And so we remember the gospel. But Jesus says these words. These are pretty harsh and powerful words. He says this, he says, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what time I will come to you. Now, when we read this in our culture, this doesn't really land home for us. But these words spoke loud and clear to the church in Sardis because it was a subtle reference. It was a subtle reference to their location, and it was a subtle reference to their history. See, Jesus says, I'll come to you like a thief. And in Sardis, we heard in the video that there was this massive gold rush. And so this city was very wealthy. And what happened is they ended up placing their security and their value in their money. They desired and they loved being rich. And Jesus says, I'll come like a thief, and a thief comes to steal. But it's also a reference to their location. You see, Sardis, you saw in the video, there was built on an acropolis, and they had these sheer cliffs, 90-degree angles. And so they were a protected city. No army in their right mind would attack Sardis because it was impossible to get to them. They were protected. They were fortified based on their location. And so they fell into this sleepy knoll of comfortability. They thought, hey, no one will ever bother us because of where we're located. And so they placed their security in their money. They placed their security in their location. But you see, over their history, 
twice. They got so comfortable that two armies trained soldiers to climb these cliffs and they completely destroyed Sardis and stole everything that they had, took away their security. And Jesus says to the church, hey, if you don't pay attention, I'm going to do the same thing to you. Why don't you take a look at this? In his letter to believers in Sardis, Jesus mentions coming to them like a thief. Thieves come unexpectedly, and they come with the intentions of taking all that is unguarded and valuable. In other words, Jesus was continuing to call the people to Sardis to wake up and realize what really mattered by saying essentially this, you are so concerned with your money and not with me that I will come to you under the cover of night when you least expect it and take what is really important to you. Jesus was threatening their security. They valued their wealth and stability, and Jesus was reminding them how quickly that could be taken away, how it could be gone. So what about you today? What do you value more than Jesus? But when Jesus finished his message to the church, he said that anyone who remains faithful to him, he will do something incredible. He himself will be their security, their provision, so instead of trusting your money, the military, your security, they could trust in something that could never be overcome and could never be taken away, Jesus himself. What a timely message for our church, for our culture. Where does your security lie? Domitian thought he held the world and we think we hold our future. No, Jesus says, I do. And if you don't wake up, you'll miss out on all that he has for your life. So Jesus says to this church, he says, wake up. We got to realize what's taking place. He says, that if you don't recognize what's going on, you're going to fall into the same trap. And this is what he was saying to this church. And this is what he's saying to us as Northridge Church, as individuals who are following Jesus. If we don't stay alert, we will fall into the trap of becoming spiritually lethargic. If we don't recognize that our enemy prowls around like a roaring lion waiting just to lull us into a sleep. A sleep where we think we're actively following God, but actually we're dying spiritually inside. He says, wake up, be alert, and stay alert. Don't ever get to the place where you find your security in something other than Christ. He says, if you do, you'll fall into this trap and you'll become just like this church, being spiritually lethargic. He says, wake up. But he also asked this church this question, this question that I had to face myself and a question that we all have to really wrestle with is where does your security lie? Where does your trust, where do you place your trust today? Maybe today you place your security much like Sardis. Maybe it's in your business that is doing well. Maybe it's in your finances because you know, hey, I've got all the money I need and so I don't need Christ because I can take care of all my needs. Maybe today you place your trust in a relationship, a dating relationship or a marriage or you're in your intelligence. You know you're so smart you can get a job and you don't need God. Where does your security lie? Where are you placing your trust? Because at the core, that's where Sardis went wrong is they found their security in their wealth and in their location. And Jesus speaks directly to that. But he continues, verse 4. He says, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. 
Jesus says, there's a few of you who have remained true, who are alive, who are awake spiritually. And I love this moment in, in this passage because it gives me an opportunity to honor some people in Northridge Church. Because Northridge Church has a, a rich history. If you don't know this, this church is over 100 years old. It's got a rich history. And about 16 years ago, I wasn't even here for this. 16 years ago, Northridge Church made a change to go a little bit more modern, a little bit more relevant to reach more and better disciples, to reach the next generation. And we have people in our church who have remained faithful to Northridge Church. People who are of the older generation who, you know what, had to give up some of their preferences, who might not even have liked all the decisions that this church made and the direction they were going, but they gave up their preferences and they gave up what they wanted to watch this church reach more and better disciples. And today, if you're part of that generation, I want to honor you. I want to say thank you to you. Because you matter in our church. Your wisdom and your life is a living example of what it means to be spiritually awake. So thank you for living that out. Jesus says, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus says a few have remained spiritually awake, who are alert and who aren't falling into this trap. And he says, I'll dress them in white. They will be dressed in white. And there's that color again. We've seen that color again, white stones. And here he says, you'll be dressed in white. And I think oftentimes we think of this white color as this forgiveness of sins, that when, when we hear white, we think of, hey, God will wipe away our sins. He will give us a white color. We'll be white as snow. And, and that is so accurate. But there's another significance of this color white. God doesn't just forgive your sins. Jesus doesn't just forgive your sins. He gave you his righteousness. And that color white is a calling placed on our life that God has forgiven us of our sins, but he calls us to a holy and a righteous life. When he says you'll be dressed in white, he's referring to the righteousness that he gives people who stay spiritually awake. He also says, I will never blot out the name, the name of them, that person who is in the book of life. The book of life is the book that says, hey, here's the people who know Jesus Christ as personal Savior. Jesus says, I'll stand before my Father and his angels, and I'll be your advocate. I'll say, this person knows me. They're well done. They've lived a well done and my good and faithful servant. And we recognize that when we stay spiritually awake, Jesus gives us victory, and he dresses us in white. He reminds us of the hope of the gospel, that one day we will stand before God, and he will invite us into the hope of heaven. But really this leads, this church leads us to a bigger question. A question that we all have to wrestle with on a regular basis if we're walking with God. Is are you spiritually awake today? Are you spiritually awake? Is there a fire in your heart? Are you passionate about reaching more and better disciples? Are you passionate about what God has done in your life? And is that fire still burning brightly or has it died down? Have you fallen into the trap where you might look the part, but in reality, your reputation says, yes, I'm spiritually awake, but the reality of your life says you're spiritually dying. Are you spiritually awake today? 
You're passionate about Jesus and what he's done in your life. What's interesting is this is a hard question to measure. How do I measure? But what's interesting is I gave you five areas of how we fall into the trap of being spiritually dying. I think you can measure these today. Today, in order to be spiritually awake, you have to love others. You have to have a passion for prayer. You have to have an ear for truth. You, have to, you can't tolerate sin, and you've got to be willing to take risks for the gospel. And man, in your groups this week, we're going to talk about that. We're going to ask some tough questions. We're going to have some candid conversations where we say, hey, you know what? Do you love others around you? Do you love your neighbors and the people in your school and in your businesses? Do you pray often? Are you passionate about prayer? Have you, have, are you allowing people to speak truth into your life? Do you tolerate sin or are you removing it? And are you taking risks for the gospel? Like, let's be honest in our community groups and let's have real conversations, not where we stare at everybody, but we be authentic and we say, hey, I'm struggling with this. Help me. That's why we gather with people in our community groups. So we grow spiritually. And if you're not in one, man, check that box, community cards on your, on your connections card, and we'll get you plugged in. But Jesus gives us one way where we can light that fire again, where we can become spiritually awake. He says in verse 3, Revelation chapter 3, verse 3, he says this. He says, remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. And he almost gives us a little practical application that we can do as a church together. He says, remember, and there's power in remembering. He says, remember the gospel. Remember what you have received. Remember that you were once dead, but Jesus made you alive. Remember that I was once dead, but Jesus made me alive. Remember the gospel, hey, that I was once dead in my sin, and I had no hope, no way of fixing my problem, but Jesus became my hope. Jesus gave up his life, he shed his blood, and his body was broken so I could have life. The only reason I can stand in victory and in hope today is because of the gospel, and remembering the gospel begins to wake us up. It begins to make us alive. It begins to wake us up to the calling God has placed on our lives. Jesus says, remember. But maybe you're here today and you can't remember because you've never given your life to Christ. You never made that decision. And maybe you're interested. Maybe God's been stirring in your heart. You've been coming to church for a couple years or a couple months or a couple weeks or you've been coming for a long time and you're, you still have questions. You still have concerns, but God is stirring in your life. And I'm telling you today, the best decision you can make is to remove that blockade, to remove your sin because you have to realize that you are still dead if you have not made a decision for Jesus Christ. You're dead to your sin because there's this massive there's this massive blockade right here. It's your sin and it's keeping you from God. It's keeping you from having a relationship with him. And until you admit that you're a sinner, you're flawed and you say, "God, I want to surrender to you. I want to give you my life. I want to I want you to be the forgiver of my sins and the leader of my life." You will remain spiritually dead. Maybe today's that day. That day where you Stop asking questions and you stop having concerns and you step out in faith and you say, I need to have a relationship with the creator of the universe, the God who died for me. If that's you today, don't leave here without having a conversation. Talk to your community group leader. Talk to your campus pastor. Talk to the person who invited you. Talk to someone. Don't leave here today without making that decision. But for a lot of us, we remember the gospel by taking place in communion. 
And that's what we're going to do today as a church is we're going to remember Jesus' blood that was shed for us and his body that was broken for us. In just a couple moments, our band's going to come up at all of our locations and play a song. And the elements, the cracker and the juice will be passed out. I'd encourage you to peel that back immediately. Hold on to it. We're going we're to participate together. But the band's going to sing a song. And I want you to understand something about communion. Communion is one for believers. So if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, this isn't for you. But maybe you're there and you, you, you want to give your life to Christ. Take this moment where the band sings to just pray to God and say, hey, God, I, I want you in my life. I need you. It's not a complicated thing. It's really simple. It's just you, not in special language, but just a cry of your heart saying, God, I want you in my life. I recognize that I'm a sinner and I'm in need of a Savior. And maybe you just take this moment to pray that prayer, to bow your heart and your head and speak to God. But for a lot of us, as we walk with God, we have to take this moment to really examine and ask ourselves the question, am I spiritually awake? Am I alive spiritually? Is God working in me or have I fallen into this trap where I'm dying inside? And maybe you take your notes out and you ask yourself those questions. Do I love others? Am I passionate about prayer? Am I tolerant of sin? Am I taking risks for the Gospels? Am I allowing people to speak truth into my life? Have I become prideful? And you just work through those questions as this band sings this song. We have to be a church that is spiritually awake. Spiritually awake, moving forward for the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So the band's going to sing. Let me pray for you. God, thank you so much that you're not afraid to, to call us out, that you're not afraid to say, wake up, we gotta wake up. And God, may we not become like the church in Sardis where we fall into this slow fade of sleeping, where we lose our effectiveness, where we lie to ourselves and we say we're doing all the right things, but yet when we get past the facade, we're dying. And so God, I pray that you would speak to us as we reflect and as we, we look and examine our lives. I pray for the person, God, who, hasn't, who has not yet have a relationship with you. I pray that you'd speak to their heart right now, that they would be bold and courageous enough to speak to a God who loves them. Thank you for what you're doing in our church, God, and it's all because of you. In Jesus' name, amen.